I'm going to start with a little story. It was uh, 1996. And again, if you guys have heard this before, please forgive me, but God can use old stuff again. So I trust that, um, as we often say, it's not new truth that we need. It's just truth. You know, so often it's not something new. It's something true that we need. So I'll trust he can use that. If you guys hear this stuff, you're like, I heard that. Hang in there. Um, 1996. It was 22 years ago. I was kind of a baby believer. I'd been a believer for four years, um, but, but not super fast grower believer, you know. So um, I am overcome with doubt. I just did not know how I was going to be a Christian anymore. Like that's where it was. I was overcome with doubt to such a significant degree, such a crippling degree for so long that I didn't know how I was going to be a Christian anymore. Like that was it. Like I don't know if I can do this anymore, period. I was confused about something Jesus had said. It seemed to me that he had made a promise, a prediction about his second coming in Matthew 25 that just could not be true. It was even something theologians had debated. But as much as I wanted, I just could not accept any of their explanations in my spirit. They all just seemed like cop-outs to me. I don't want to go into the details of this particular text. That's not necessary for this morning. But the point is, I seriously feared, feared that I had found Jesus saying something that was not true at all. And that possibility meant that I couldn't trust him anymore. And that horrified me. I felt completely dejected and fearful and I would lose my faith because of it. That's how I felt. It was significant enough to me that after much studying and searching... I believe I may have decided to fast for several days over a specific weekend. And over that weekend, I devoted myself, I think, my recollection, Lord knows if I'm recollecting wrong, but I think I devoted myself to hours of prayer and study fasting. And just as Sunday night came to a close, I had to go home because I had to go to sleep and I had to eat and I was exhausted. But I had no answer. And I felt empty, and I felt like a failure. I, I, I remember just sitting down as I was about to leave, just full of doubt and fearful of facing a future, more of my future, without faith. And for some reason, I decided to pray just one last time. I mean, all this, you know, for me, in terms of my relative state, all this fasting, all this prayer, all this searching, all this seeking... And I decided, I'm I'm just going to pray one last time. So I did. I sat down on the steps. I remember this very clearly. Just, God, I'm trying this one last time. Will you please help me with this? And in the quietness of my desperate prayer, I heard. Not with physical ears, but I heard with spiritual ears. It was not audible. Physically, but it was completely discernible. It was words. They were a few short words, as clear to me as if they had been spoken out loud. And they were about the passage I was struggling with. And I heard these specific words in my heart read it again and read it carefully. I heard. I mean, hours and hours and months and months of study and wrestling. I think I wrote D.A. Carson about it eventually. 
You know, this great theologian in Illinois, like king of theology guy in the universe, if, if you're in the little evangelical part of Christianity. And he wrote me back. But I had studied this forever. MacArthur, F.F. Bruce, if you've heard of those guys, big theologicals. And I'm looking for this huge, profound answer. And what I hear from God is, read it again. And read it carefully. What can I say? <laughs> I did. And I tried to read it very carefully. And suddenly, I saw something there in the text, right in the Bible's words, that I had missed for what seemed like years. The answer was right there all along in the text, available to my naked eye, and somehow I had been blind to the logic of it. Sometime after this, I did. I I read again about it in several theologians' works. I think it was D.A. Carson I wrote to to confirm. Had I seen what he had seen? And I read it, you know, in an Ivy Press dictionary. Did they see what I had seen? Could they show me and confirm to me an unstudied kid that that what I had seen and suddenly became so obvious and clear to me was tenable? I mean, how could I have missed it all these months, if not years? And they said, yeah, of course. (laughs) That's what we think. I couldn't believe it. But it didn't matter if they'd had tons of degrees. You know, it... It didn't matter if I didn't have any degrees. It it was the Holy Spirit communicating with my spirit that made all the difference in the world. I couldn't believe that night I was finally free from this paralyzing doubt I'd struggled with for so long. This fear about the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ that hounded me. It was gone. And it wasn't my last battle with doubt. It wasn't my last battle with doubt. But at, at least until this time, 22 years later, it was... Such a huge victory that its effect covered all other battles from then on to come. God was just not as breakable to me after I met him in that victory. We all have spiritual doubts. We all struggle with moments and sometimes seasons, some of us for years, where we question God and we question our place with him. And I think these spiritual doubts usually fall into two major categories. The first is we doubt God. We doubt him. We, we doubt things like, is he real? Is the God of the Bible really true? Does he really exist? If he does, is he really who the Bible says he is? Is he, and if he does exist, is he really good? Is he really in control? That's a major category. The second category is this. We doubt ourselves in relation to him. We have doubts about ourselves in relation to him. Am I really his child? Do I really have a saving relationship with him? Am I really going to be with him forever in eternal peace and joy? Can he really save me to the end? Can he really help me now? When doubts about God or or our relationship with him are more than brief and more than fleeting, they can become very, very painful, can't they? They discourage us. They harass us. They make enjoying God and walking with him feel impossible. They make us feel ashamed. They can make us feel alone. They can lead to spiritual paralysis. How can you have energy and spiritual strength to walk in this life with the Lord when you don't know if he's for you? Even worse, when you don't know if he's real. How can you hope to make the right decisions when you don't know if you have his supply of wisdom or even if he exists to give it to you? 
And then there's a whole other category that can happen where doubts become pathways to hardness. Where doubts become means of justifying or ignoring God's authority and slowly walking away from him into sin. If he's not real, then what does it matter what I do? If he isn't for me, then why should I care about him? Doubt can be a terribly painful and a terribly dangerous thing. And I know this from many years of my own experience. But what I also know from years of experience with doubt is this. Properly responded to, never perfectly responded to, right? That's not what I mean. But properly responded to, doubt is used by God to build our faith in ways we couldn't imagine and in ways it never would have been without the doubt. That's my main theme this morning. It probably will be up there. Oh, what a wonderful font size for you guys. Sorry about that. Not so great. Apologize. Um, But this is my main theme this morning. We must allow God to use our doubt to strengthen our faith before the enemy uses doubt to destroy it. We must allow God to use our doubt to strengthen our faith before the enemy tries to use doubt to destroy our faith. And as, as counterintuitive as it might sound, when doubt comes, it's a signal To run to God. When doubt about God comes, it's a signal to run to God. To run to his word. To run to his people. It's not a signal to isolate ourselves. That's what doubt wants us to do. That's what the enemy wants to do with doubt. I don't want to say doubt wants it to do. It's not an ontological being. But, But that's what the devil wants to do with our doubt. Like he does with so many things. Is to put ourselves in the corner in the bush. Hide from, hide from find our relief in other things. But God wants to use our doubt to drive us to him. It's like the muscle. We've talked about this before. The muscle builder in the gym is weights. Something that comes in opposition against our muscle has to be pushed against in order to gain more muscle. So God, when we turn to him with our doubt, is able to use use it to make the muscle of faith eventually stronger as we keep pushing against it in the proper ways. And I... I'm going to talk about those proper ways now. But to help us in this morning, I want to look at one of the most famous passages on doubt in Scripture, and it's found in John 20. The context is exactly one week after Easter Sunday. This is a famous passage about a famous doubter. Most of you probably know already who I'm talking about, but let's let's read. Uh, You got it. Let's read in John 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders... Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, I will not believe. And put my hands in his side, he said, I will not believe. One week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. (laughs) Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Praise you, Lord. 
Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, praise you. Praise your holy word. Praise you for coming to us in the goodness and the power and the might and the glory of your son. Lord, I am undeservedly affected by this passage now. So I, I am trusting your grace and your mercy is at work. And I just want it to be at work in all of our hearts. Would you, through your Holy Spirit, meet everyone here, whether through this message or despite it, by it or around it, meet us today, each and every one. We pray for Buzz and those kids. We pray for folks who are praying and talking out in the hallways. We pray your spirit would anoint all of this. Do in us what we can't do for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first point of this passage is this, for me, for this message. God is not intimidated by your doubt and wants you to deal humbly and openly with him and his people about it. That's a long point. I used to write longer points. (laughs) This is, yeah, see, I know. God is not intimidated by your doubt. And he wants you to deal humbly and openly with him and his people about it. That's point one. So let's talk about this a little bit. Why do I think that or see that in this passage? So we have Thomas this morning. And let's just say Thomas is is representing us, right? Because we're not Jesus in this story. We're more likely to be Thomas. He's a loyal follower He's a committed disciple of the Lord. And now, post-resurrection, Thomas, who's given his life to following Jesus for three years, has just seen his Lord executed for blasphemy. And he's likely traumatized and rejected and fearful. His fellow followers have all seen the risen Lord, though. So their fear has turned into hope, but his is not. Because he hasn't seen him yet. And he declares against their witness in the prison cell of his brokenness and fear and shock and discouragement. Unless I see the nail marks in his hand, put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. It seems really really possible. This is just a man who's just been crushed. Sorrow after sorrow, dejection after dejection and fearful. And if you follow Thomas along in other passages, you see Thomas has at least in what we're offered, a real melancholy spirit, a real discourageable spirit. He's a real true follower. He's loyal to the Lord, but he's pessimistic in in the pictures we have of him. Now, make no mistake, I think Thomas should believe. I mean, this is Jesus who has done countless miracles. This is the Jesus who commands us all to believe, though we've not seen him. But Thomas saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Thomas saw Jesus walk on the water. Thomas saw Jesus calm the storm and ad infinitum of the miracles that Jesus did. Yet after all that, 
he's in deep trouble. He, he needs to believe in order to follow Jesus. He needs to believe in order to receive eternal life. So there's not just a relational issue between his trauma and his Lord. There's a real critical matter here. Belief is of utmost importance. Faith in the Lord is commanded and demanded. It's not a simple, it's not a trite thing. But he doesn't have it right now. He, he's not exactly, we'll talk about this in a second, living in unbelief. I wouldn't say that. But he's not believing what they said. At least not according to his own words. I will not believe. That's what he says. But look at what he does. He doesn't hide it. Where is Thomas? He's among his close friends. He doesn't pretend he's someone he's not. He's with his close friends and he's telling them the truth about himself. We might put it in another way today if we were speaking our own words. I'm in trouble with my faith and I need help. And I need help from God. That's the way we might put it. I think Thomas's presence with his disciples at this dangerous point and his open honesty about his doubt Declaring his trouble to his closest friends who are committed to Jesus. I believe these things demonstrate a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's an implicit sign of this man's desire to be a man of faith and his humility and his, his crying out in a sense to be with them and to say the truth about himself. It's very important. And, and so that just, I, I think God's showing us in this text, this is part of how you deal humbly and openly with your doubt. Sometimes <clears throat> when, when we doubt, God or a relationship with him. We, we want to hide from God's people. We fear rejection. We fear the loss of respect. We crave. We fear being a burden or a bore or being not looked on in the way we want to. We, we don't want to be real about it. We feel vulnerable. We're, maybe we'll fear we'll be ridiculed or just told simplistic things. You believe. God doesn't have time for your doubts. I remember struggling with doubt early in my walk going to a pastor at this church and he said to me, God doesn't, uh, something like, God isn't asking you to doubt. He's asking you to believe. Like he, and it, the, the tone I remember was very much that. Like, God isn't asking you to doubt. He's asking you to believe. And it was just like, okay. Oh, thank you. Like, that kind of response. And, and, and he, you know, in, in that moment, I think he wanted to move on to other things, you know. That kind of response can leave you, like, unwilling to open yourself up again. We can fear God's displeasure. Not just the person who might ridicule us, but God. We know God wants faith. We know without faith it's not possible to please him. We know from the Bible he deserves trust. So we can feel this sense of shame, condemnation before him. We don't want to go to him. But, but is that where God wants us? Is that where he wants me? Is that where he meets us? In, in Matthew 14, Peter's walking on the water with Jesus. And yes, it would have been better if Peter had stayed above the waves and kept his eyes on Jesus and rock and rolled it, right? But once he lost sight of the Lord, once he'd lost sight of Jesus and he fixed his gaze on the earthly circumstances, the wind and the waves, once he began to shrink and sink through the loss of his faith, what's his best next move? Keep it to himself? Forget it. It's okay. You know? Oh, please. I'm sorry I couldn't believe. No. He says, Lord, save me. 
Lord, save me. And when he gets up, Jesus says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But he also got saved from drowning. (laughs) So yeah, he got a talking to, but he isn't sleeping with the fishes. No wonder Jude, writing through the Holy Spirit, commands us, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful. Because God is merciful. In Mark 9, when the father whose son was demon-possessed tells Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us, Jesus' reply is, if you can, like if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. When he heard this implicit correction and exhortation from Jesus, I mean, this is a desperate father in a desperate situation, and Jesus gives him a very small lecture. Right? I mean, that's what he does. This is a tough love moment. If I can, what do you mean, if I can? Who do you think you're talking to? All things are possible to him who believes. He doesn't sulk back, this guy. He doesn't, his response is, no, in pride, reversed, expressing itself in fear and shame, inverted pride. He doesn't say, well, I guess I'm really not pleasing Jesus here. I guess he's just too hard. I mean, I guess he won't help. No, this man... He does not deny that Jesus deserves his full faith, but he also honestly and passionately declares his need for help. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I got a little bit, but I got a whole lot else that's not. I'm hanging on by a thread. Please help. I got five loaves And three fishes for 5,000 people. But that's enough. That's enough. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus blesses this man, immediately gives help to him. God gives help to those who humbly admit their need for help. And so that's part of responding to doubt is to be humbly real about it before the Lord and humbly real about it before his people. Os Guinness says, even the most devastating doubt remains faith and does not become unbelief when we pray. When we use our doubt to push us into God and cry out for help, that's an expression of faith. If we doubt and yet are willing to cry out, Lord, save me, we're not yet hardened in unbelief. And even that desperate cry, fueled by a longing for faith, is itself a little faith of a mustard seed size. Enough to save sinking Peter. And if that's all we have, it's infinitely more precious than anything else in our possession. Because the tiniest mustard seed of faith is about depending on and acknowledging God's glory and God's sufficiency. And it means so much more than all our effort and all our own work. So if it may be that we cannot walk on water as we should, we had better be darn sure we reach out the hand while sinking. And say, Lord, save me. I'm a mess. So if you're struggling with serious doubt, I appeal to you this morning, go to God, plead with him to save you from it. Go to his people who love you and tell them you need help. Do this again and again and again. If you need to, fast and pray and 
hide yourself up in a church library like I did for a few days until you experience his hand pulling you out. For when you do experience his hand pulling you out, you will have a deeper sense of his power and his character than you would have ever had without the doubt. And you will experience the building blocks that doubt is being forged into by God to build your character, build your hope, build your faith. And God, that's precious to the Lord when he builds that. He protects that. He uses that again and again. Secondly, God has what you need to help you persevere against your doubts. God has what you need. Going back to our text this morning. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Then then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's very humbling. (laughs) Again, Jesus isn't saying, I'm so glad that you said, I will not believe unless I get this. He gave Thomas a little lecture. (laughs) He gave us all a huge implicit encouragement because I take it for granted most of us have not seen the risen Lord, but yet seeking and do believe but let's consider the lord's response to to thomas a little more deeply charles spurgeon says this i love this speaking of jesus spurgeon says he does not say if he does not choose to believe he may continue to suffer for his unbelief no he fixes his eye on the doubter and addresses himself specially to him yet not in words of reproach or anger Jesus could bear with Thomas. Jesus could bear with Thomas. Though Thomas had been a long time with him and yet had not known him still, to put his finger into the print of the nails and to thrust his hand into the side was much more than any disciple had a right to ask of his divine master. And yet see the condescension of Jesus. That means see how much Jesus is willing to lower himself and humble himself. Rather than Thomas should suffer from unbelief, Christ will let him take great liberties. Rather than Thomas should suffer from unbelief, Christ would let him take great liberties. Our Lord does not always act toward us to his own dignity, but according to our necessity. Isn't that amazing isn't that beautiful our lord does not act to us according to his own dignity but according to our necessity god is humble almighty god is in christ jesus a man of great Humility. He'd be up here putting the drum set away. As much as he'd be here preaching from the pulpit. He'd be back there serving in children's ministry. He'd be getting coffee for Brando. Thank you, Brando. 
Spurgeon goes on, and if we really are so weak that nothing will do but thrusting a hand into his side, he will let us do it. Nor do I wonder at this, if for our sakes he suffered a spear to be thrust there, he may well prepare. I just need this so much. I hope you do too. Do I, nor do I wonder at this. If for our sakes he suffered a spear to be thrust there, he may well permit a hand to follow. Isn't Jesus beautiful? I mean, that beauty alone can make you believe. Because <laughs> you see something like that and you're just like, how can I deny the beauty? This is what I need. This is who I need. And then suddenly you're like, this is such a match <laughs> for my problems and my longings and this is such a match for exactly what my hunger is for it must be true i've been dreaming of a hamburger my whole life and i've never seen it but as soon as i saw it i said that's a hamburger that's what i've been wanting my whole life it's a crude analogy but it's like when you see the thing that it's been in your heart waiting for so long you know like when adam saw eve and he says oh finally Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. I don't think he saw him. I was like, what's that? I think he was like, oh man, I was created for that. Somehow I knew all along I was created for that. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, when I read a little passage like that, if for our sakes he suffered a spear to be thrust there, he may well permit a hint. It's just, oh. So the end result of Thomas declaring his doubt and Jesus' response is that Thomas confesses that not only is he the Messiah, but he's Almighty God. And Jesus made all that happen through his humility. What is it specifically that you need to battle your doubts and to find robust faith? To some degree, it depends on the cause of your doubt, right? Which can vary. But whatever it is you need, Jesus is willing to provide it. That's what the story is trying to tell us, what Spurgeon is trying to say. See, he's not unaware of your doubt. He's not intimidated by your doubt. He's certainly not unprepared. (laughs) He's not unaware of it. And he's not intimidated by it. And he's not unprepared to lay its controlling grip to waste. It's not too hard for him to take your doubts and your struggles and blow them to bits. (laughs) But he does it in his time because he's got a lot of... He's got a lot of things to draw out from us through our struggle. Ed Welch says, well, let's talk about a few specific resources, though, that God uses to help us with our doubt. So getting into a little bit of the weeds of how God helps us. Let's start with his word, God's word. Ed Welch says, here is one of the great, (laughs) here is one of the great does of all time. When doubts flare, read the Bible. That has become my number one response to doubts. Paul declares in Romans ten seventeen, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. <clears throat> faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes from seeing Jesus. Sometimes that comes through people like Charles Spurgeon exegeting him, unpacking him for us, helps us see his word better. Sometimes I think it's always essential. God meets us in his word directly. 
God's word is self-authenticating. That's an old theological um, aphorism, like truth. God's word is self-authenticating. What it means is that the Holy Spirit works in our spirit to bear witness to the truth of God's word. This is why getting in God's word and seeing God's word like seriously and carefully meditating on it is so important. You're giving God's words um, the chance to speak to you, not just from the page to your eyes, but from his spirit to your spirit. When you read God's word, you're giving his words the chance to speak to you, not just from the pages to your eyes, but God uses these natural things like words and pages to work his spirit into our spirits, where faith is sown in the invisible place of our heart. There's a season where I really struggled the question, is the Bible trustworthy? Is it really God's word? And I would be driven back to it again and again and to other books to deal with things that I thought were possible contradictions or mistakes. But as I looked and I studied and I looked and I studied and more and more I discovered from amazing prophecies fulfilled to the piercing personal words of Jesus like we just read in God's servant, I, I came to a fuller and fuller belief that Proverbs 35 is true. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. But there's also this other truth. Satan, as he did with Eve and he did with Jesus, can use God's own words to create doubt in us. But he never overcomes a studied, humble understanding of God's word. Satan's tactic is to twist God's word. Or to mute it. Or to have it say what it doesn't actually mean. And if you're, if you're really looking for a way out of Christianity though. If you really are looking. If your doubts are really about you. If, they've, if you've moved from doubting to really looking for a way out. You can read just enough Bible superficially. To give yourself an unjustified exit ramp. My mom used to say this phrase. She said to him who believes no proof is necessary to him who does not believe. No proof is sufficient. And that's a simplistic way. It doesn't really live in the place of doubt that I'm talking about. But her point is that if someone really doesn't want to believe the Bible, they can find things on a superficial level to beat it up with. But if you're truly looking to hold on to God through your doubts and you come to his word respectfully and prayerfully, then I believe God will prove himself faithful. And it may take a long time. It may take, in some cases, with some issues, it might take years. For me, it did. I think that Matthew 25 issue had been going on that I talked to. I think that had probably had at least several years of its teeth in me. My best recollection. <clears throat> a second resource besides his word is, is his mercy. And here I mean that there are times, not all the time, but there are times when our doubts are mingled with and rooted in part in sin. And in disobedience. Another like personal anecdote. I remember a terrible season of doubting about my assurance before God. And this isn't always the case, by the way. Your doubts are not always rooted or mingled with your disobedience. So this is just, hey, it's possible. But I remember um, just really being stricken with this fear that I wasn't God's kid anymore. I couldn't shake it. Um, and I, I, I remember reading this book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? That was the title of the book. Um, how can it was either how can I or how can you be sure you're a Christian but it was by Donald Whitney and in the book he talks about different problems that get in the way of our faith and one of them is hatred (laughs) 
shock, but he, he basically says, listen, if you are hating God's people or hating someone, you can't expect to be assured that you're a Christian, even if you are one. You're, you're just going to plug up the pipeline between you and God so much that your hatred for somebody will make it harder for you to believe. And, and I, it just convicted me that I was really, really um, struggling in my relationship with this brother um, at this church I was at. And that I realized that I was in deep resentment about him. Just I'd gotten to a pretty bitter place. And as I confessed that, as I worked through that, I felt this release of the pain of that doubt of am I God's kid? So sometimes there are areas of sin in your life that can pollute God's flow to you that you need to deal with. And a third resource is, is, is I just want to mention to you, there are other resources, but a third resource is, is persevering. Even in the midst of your doubts, persevering to the point of answered prayer. I'll explain what I mean, but it's persevering through your doubts to the point of answered prayer. And what I mean is that one of the attributes of God is what theologians call his imminence. It means he's, he's always near. He's aware of everything in your life. And so what this means is that you can go to him about everything in your life. And you can trust that he wants to and can help you. And I, I find I'm surprised by this like on a daily basis. That I catch myself just implicitly by default, unconsciously believing that God's not a part of this. Like, God's not a part of this problem I have with my car. God's not a part of me having lost my keys. God's not a part of this problem with my son that I just don't know how to handle. I just do that throughout the day, implicitly, unconsciously. I'm saying to myself, God's not a part of this. God doesn't want to hear about this. God can't help this. God, and I don't go to him then about these things. But it's crazy what I see when I do go to him about the littlest things. I remember one time, maybe I've told this story before, losing my glasses, I think it was. I can't remember what I lost, but let's just say it was my, my sunglasses. And I was outside at my car, and I realized I'd lost my glasses. And my inflection was, I hate myself. Like, I, it wasn't like, you know, everyone come and feel bad for me. It was just this, like, proud judgment on myself. Like, this is a weakness I have that's so pervasive, I just forget things all the time. And I do. Like, I have a terrible problem with forgetting things. Every day. David just gave me my wallet today. I left it at his house on Wednesday night. That's just, that's how I live. Every, my community of friends takes care of my wallet. I have a leather jacket I used to love. A lot of you guys know about it. It's gone. It's at somebody's house in this church or somebody who probably left the church. I'll probably never see that jacket again. If you found a leather jacket, it's probably mine. But, but I remember standing at my car and just saying, I hate who I am. Like, this is awful. And it was like, God just rebuked me. He was just like, there was a sense of, what proud, what pride there was in saying, I hate that about, I hate myself, judging myself. Because for him, this deficiency in me was a weakness that he could show his power and his grace and his mercy in. And I was mad that I wasn't stronger. And God found that prideful 
And he found it, uh, it's an obstruction to my recognizing his glory and his sufficiency, my self-hatred. So I, in that moment, I repented and I said, darn it, that was the wrong thing to say about myself. Not because I'm so great, but because that's a dis- discredit to God, who he's made me and the opportunities he has to give me and my weakness, his strength and his mercy. And so I think I either said or he, in the interchange with God, I, I saw my sunglasses. They were upstairs in my, in, my, um, in my bathroom. Now, I don't know if I ever remember putting them there or if some other person did. But I saw them. The glasses were on my sink in my mind. And that was a miracle. Like, that, was, that wasn't like me remembering. It was absolute God saying, here's where your glasses is. Here's a video scan picture. And I went upstairs, and my glasses were right there on my sink. So my, my point is that what God wants to do with your weakness in your doubts is meet you. And one of the ways he does that is that when you begin to just act with the mustard seed of faith as if God is imminent, as if he's near, as if he's part of all the things that you struggle with every day, and you start going to him about those things and using a mustard seed of faith or crying out, Lord, have mercy, meet me, then God has the chance to answer you in these little ways throughout the day. And you have the chance to start to see, oh, he's real. Like he's concrete. So when I was a young man, before that story about the glasses, I remember coming across a book on prayer by Charles Stanley. And Stanley mentioned there the great, great value in writing down your prayers and then going back over them within a relatively short amount of time to see what God did. With your prayer requests. The prayer requests that I would forget almost immediately after praying them. The prayer requests that if I write them in my journal, I probably forget about them as soon as I close my journal. But if I come back a few days later, if on Saturdays every week I come back in the morning, make Saturday my day when I go back over the last few days' prayer requests, and I look over them and I remember what I've prayed, suddenly I am astounded. I remember my reaction was I was just shocked with delight at all the prayers that God had answered that I had would never have given him credit for because I'd even forgotten what I'd asked for. So there I was asking God for things and pretty soon forgetting I'd even asked him. And there he was. What does a humble person do when people ask them for help? He helps them. What does a humble person do if people ask them for help and then they forget they've even asked for help? He still helps anyway. I found out that God was humbly continuing to answer prayers that I'd forgotten about. And that I never would have given him credit for answering. Because I was forgetting about it. But when I tracked him, when I came back and saw, this is what I prayed for. It just blew me away. And I began to take my faith and doubt issues out of the abstract. That moved me out of my doubts in this abstract theological realm of, does God exist? Did he, was he... Is this verse correct? Is this verse the right way of thinking about something? What if there? And it, it infused this strong element of just daily concrete proof of God's active work in my daily life. You know, sometimes it's hard to, to battle. You've got to battle with it. You've got to battle with it. But sometimes answering the question, Lord, am I really your child? Can take a lot more time than, than God, can you help me find my keys? Right? You gotta work on both things. But if you, 
If you're only dealing with it, am I really your child? And you're not dealing with it, do I have my keys? Well, you might be missing out on concrete ways that God wants to tell you that he knows your name and he loves you and you're his little boy or his little girl. So, such became my practice for many, many years, which was writing down prayers and coming back to them later. You know, or today now I'm more apt to, God, can you help with this? God, can you help with this? Where are my keys? Help me control my anger with my son. Get me out of this. I call it the bounce. It's like I'm, I'm in, my kid is doing something and I want to lose it. I bounce my head up. Okay, God, help. You know, that's kind of all I can do a lot of days. So, coming back to the end here, we got to close. These are just some ways that I hope you guys will take heart. God wants to use our doubts to strengthen our faith before the enemy destroys it. And the last thing is just, if you are a person who, who does not believe in Jesus, doesn't know if you believe in Jesus, wants to believe in Jesus, let me just close with this passage from, from Spurgeon. Soul, if you would know whether you are a child of God, look not to thyself, but look to Christ. You who are here today who desire to be saved, but yet fear you never can be. O sinner, think not that thou art to bring anything to Christ to recommend thee. Come to him just as thou art. He wants no good works of yours, no good feelings either. Come just as you are. All that you can want to fit you for heaven, he has bought for you. He will give you all these freely. And you shall have them for the asking. Only come, and he will not cast you away. But do you say, oh, I cannot believe that Christ is able to save such a sinner as I am. I reply, oh, you of little faith. Why do you doubt? He has already saved sinners as great as you are. Only try him. Only try him. Try him and try him. And if you find him false, then tell it everywhere that Christ was untrue. But that shall never be. Go tell him. Tell him you are a wretched, undone soul without his sovereign grace. Ask him to have mercy on you. Tell him you are determined that if you do perish, you will perish at the foot of his cross. Go and cling to him as he hangs bleeding there. Look him in the face and say, Jesus, I have no other refuge. If you spurn me, I am lost. But I will never go from you. I will clasp thee in life and clasp thee in death as the only rock of my soul's salvation. Depend on it. You shall not be sent empty away. You must, you shall be accepted if you will simply believe. And I would add, with even the weakest and smallest of faiths.